I'm Diane Lee, and this is Never Forget What They Did. On March 12, 2020, the WHO declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. In July 2020, the Australian government actively prevented its citizens and permanent residents returning home from overseas or interstate. When we got back, they locked us up and made us pay. These are our stories because we must never forget what they did. When the pandemic was declared, Stuart was working on a 12-month humanitarian aid contract for Oxfam in war-torn Syria. When his contract ended, he spent the next eight months trying to exit the war-torn country and return home to Australia. Needing to depressurise after spending 20 months in a war zone and concerned about his financial situation, he found respite in Greece before making his way to the UK. With international flight caps in place and one flight after another cancelled, he eventually secured a repat flight from the UK into Howard Springs, Northern Territory. This is Stuart's story. I was working for Oxfam GB, Oxfam Great Britain, and I was in I was in Damascus in Syria. I was doing I was doing a, a 12 month aid work contract and we were spending yeah I was responsible for 25 million dollars worth of water supply repairs in cities and and trying to get uh, Syrians back to Syria so I was there when it kicked off and of course it became very intense because not only being in a war zone to respond in that way we then had a war zone with the pandemic on top. And so just like the rest of the world, you know, we suddenly turned into uh, responding to the pandemic also. It was, it was intense, certainly. Well, I've, I've, been, I've been working in emergency responses around the world for, well, 22 years to that point. And so... You know, naturally, in my particular expertise of public health engineering, I abided by whatever WHO was putting out. So um, it was no surprise to me. I could read between the lines. And um, even what WHO was putting out, to me, it wasn't really actually as uh, acute as the whole world was making it out. And it took it took several months, for example, for everyone to understand what WHO was saying about masks, for example. And you know, the advice it was giving out, it was it was all advice and it was it was played up, if anything, by all the different countries around the world. And there was a lot of copy and pasting of responses around the world. So it was very interesting for me to watch. Um, how it all unfolded uh, and it was it was kind of un- unbelievable you have to understand i've been to i've i've attended and responded to several cholera epidemics around the world in africa in the pacific in asia i i know what a pandemic is and so um this was all this was all normal for me but the actual response itself was you know, just taking turns in directions that were 
driven in ways that me as a as an emergency response person i i'd probably be fired and never work again if i'd have responded in the way everybody else did so it, it was very interesting for me to watch how uh, the pandemic just took over everything and other you know real issues around the world were just kind of ignored Stuart, with his experience in emergency response, was shocked how other issues were minimised as COVID gained a life of its own and lockdowns were rolled out across the globe. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, lockdowns which occurred um, where I was in, in Syria at that time, they were serious. You, you would not, of course, want to be outside your place of residence during a lockdown in a war zone. Um, that's kind of dangerous. But, but even there and in the neighbouring countries, you know, lockdowns very quickly were lifted, not because they were necessary or unnecessary. It was because the lockdowns themselves were causing so much more harm than what they were int- intending to do. Lockdowns are fine if you work from a laptop at home and you can get your online Coles deliveries. But if you, you know, if you're in one room with a family of, you know, multiple generations, it's kind of a privileged way, isn't it? It's just not realistic in most countries in the world. And it's not just war zones. It's developing countries where people live hand to mouth and you uh, you take away that ability to get outside and go and buy some bread or earn a living day to day you 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 know people starve and and that, that is a reality and that was happening Stuart could see that the people making the decisions around the pandemic were not experts in emergency management the whole thing would have been laughable if the implications of the decisions weren't so catastrophic This is the the comedy for me, for future generations to look back on. The people in charge were not emergency response people and the decisions they were making were, oh, we need to stop this from happening. And the momentum of, you know, believing in this future of, of disaster, saying we must stop this from happening, not even considering anything else. And, and I, I would call this the biggest white elephant in our generation, in our history, purely because I think it was incredibly badly managed. It needed to be managed. It was just hilarious that they managed it in the way they did. I've got little respect for anyone uh, in, in leadership who just assumed that because they were political. Like, I'm going off on a tangent. Stuart makes an excellent point. Essentially, the response to the pandemic was about politics, not health, and the edicts that were issued didn't make sense. You can't go outside your house, but I need to go out that house to earn a living. You go to uh, you go to Melbourne right now. Go to outside Victoria Market busiest tourist attraction and local place to go and there must be 30 to 40 
small shops which were there for generations that are family name all closed and boarded up what good did that do well, great if you're a multinational, right, if you're a Woolworths or a Bunnings or a BWS. I agree. I think it ended up being a vicious cycle of the media jumping onto it and the, the government looking to have actually looked like they were doing something because there was a pandemic plan that was updated in August 2019. Now, I, I don't know too much about pandemic preparedness, but I would have assumed that there would have been various experts involved and that there would have been millions of dollars spent on this pandemic plan, but it was literally thrown out the window as soon as an actual real or imagined pandemic arrived. And for me, that just doesn't make any sense. People who are not equipped to lead um, led, and that was, that was the problem. Do you remember Morrison's media conference on March 18 at all? I was obviously following every day, you know, when I got to work in Syria, in Damascus, I was following every day what the news was because I was trying to get home. I'd finished my 12-month contract and I wanted to come home. Of course, I do remember around about that time, suddenly it became, look, if you're okay, stay where you are. Based on that particular press release or press briefing that was given, I said to my country director at the time, look, this is happening. Would you be able to give me three more months and uh, I'll just stay here and ride it out? He was like, yeah. And so we agreed I would stay for three more months, booked a flight at that point in time for, I think, the 25th of July. I booked it for the end of my three months, my next month's extension. And it was only leading up, I guess, a week or so before I was due to leave. I checked my flight and it said, no, it's not landing in Melbourne. And I called the airline. I'm like, what's happened? Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> you can't go to Melbourne. Uh, I said, well, what, what will you do? Because I can get out of here. I've got the paperwork to get out of Syria. What can I do? And, you know, it just turned into, of course, the same for everyone else, the whole, you know, chasing airlines for flights, which... They, they give you flights, but then immediately you paid for them. They were suddenly uh, the, the final leg into your destination in Australia was cancelled. And then, and then you had the fight, which could take 30 to 60 days to get that money returned. While, meanwhile, you tried to book a separate flight. I had two flights on the go at one stage. Both were not guaranteed to get me there. So, of course, like... You and everybody else, uh, the hundreds of thousands of us, Australians, which were now stranded, um, uh, it then began that whole episode of following every single piece of media, every single news release, every new cabinet meeting decision. We were following that, wondering, when am I going to be able to get home? And what am I going to do? Uh, between now and then how long is it going to take how much money have i got how much can i afford the life that i've got in australia the mortgage i've got how can i afford that with all those bills because now um i don't have a job actually anymore and i've got to stay here outside of australia i'm paying for two existences so my money now i'm paying I'm staying in hotels um, I managed to get out of Syria 
with the paperwork. I was now stuck in Syria basically from when I arrived in January through the restrictions now. I stayed in Damascus until August. I think August the 16th, I managed to get out. And so I'd spent eight months in a war zone, which typically you do not want to spend more than about six weeks without a break. After escaping Syria through Lebanon, Stuart found some solace in Greece, but the last few months had taken its toll. He needed to depressurise, but at the same time, the stress of not being able to get home to Australia was building. Well, um, I was feeling very closed in. in, in I was very, feeling very closed into a war zone, actually, and the paperwork to get out. I managed to get out eventually. What a relief. And that was just the journey of, you know, am I going to, are we going to get through the whole of this journey to the escape, to the plane? And it, it seems like something off of film. I managed to get through the border and wow, you get into Lebanon and what is basically a car park on the road from the border to the airport is completely empty. And everywhere there is boarded up as well. And we flew, we flew by taxi basically from Damascus to Beirut in the space of just less than two hours, which is normally about a four hour journey with, with customs immigration. And um, I just couldn't believe how, um, you know, I was suddenly free. However, I was in Beirut and my only options were Greece or Turkey. Um, they were the only places allowing people in. Um, I chose Greece. I went to Athens. And I'll, I'll admit, I, I holed up myself uh, in a hotel for a few days and uh, enjoyed some Greek draft beer and ouzo and just, just took that little bit of time to uh, depressurize um, and, and weigh up my options. And I couldn't stay... I couldn't stay in Athens drinking myself to oblivion every day. In one way, Stuart was grateful that he was on his own, but it meant that he had no support and had to navigate his circumstances on his own. Maybe with a partner, that would have been okay too. We could have helped each other. If I'd have been a family with children, Oh my God, the responsibility would have been immense. I would have had to just switch into a different mode. But I was on my own. And the ramifications of that too is, you know, you're inside your head. I chose actually to go to, I thought I'd go to a Greek island for a couple of weeks because I still need to depressurize from a war zone for the last 20 months in total. And I've got a couple of flights on the go to get back to Australia, which I'm emailing and calling every day, trying to see how they are going to turn out. And so, yeah, I, I ended up going to an island. Yeah, I went to Corfu just to depressurize. They also were going through their own ramifications of that, of the pandemic. I, I ended up staying and getting some very cheap lodgings for about six weeks. And then thought, I can't stay here. In fact, I think... Corfu was closing down for the winter. I went to Liverpool. Stuart 
Stuart left Greece, worried about being stuck there, and went to Liverpool, where he had family. His financial situation was becoming a major concern. By now, I'm starting to really worry about my financial capacity. You know, people don't recognise this, but when you work overseas, you pay taxes like exactly the same as if you are in Australia. I just paid taxes for 20 months, top dollar. You know, I'm, I'm working out what I can do with the money that I've saved. I'm, I'm already spending it. I've already spent most of it on, you know, the project I want to do when I come back to Australia. And so I'm, I'm starting to think, how long am I going to survive? And I know at that point what's going on in my head is I know exactly how much tomorrow is going to cost. And I know exactly how much that reduces the amount of money I have. Problem is, I don't know how long this is going to last. So what is my end date for financial oblivion? I've also got my, my place in Australia, in Melbourne, my apartment, my tenants have also suffering from the pandemic. I've asked for a 50% reduction. I give them because I understand what they're going through. But of course, um, I'm now paying to live in Melbourne and I'm paying to live in Corfu or wherever I am. I'm paying for two, two existences, except one I can't get to. Uh, I had to uh, say I was extremely lucky. I went to Liverpool. I stayed with my brother on his couch and I was there for about four weeks. I think I was starting to get a little bit depressed. <laughs> Really going into myself like, how on earth? And it's all financial insecurity. This makes you emotionally stressed. This stresses you. Yeah, exactly. The uncertainty is really bad for your brain. All the neuroscience is in. You're like you, you're basically in survival mode and, and it's really hard to make decisions because the uncertainty just does your head in. And so remember, you you went through the same as me, I guess, the Facebook sites that we were on. We were like family suddenly because we're all trying to work out how to get back. We're all informing each other on different ways to get back. We're all following those cabinet meeting decisions. We are all writing to our MPs. We are all asking, why can't we get home? How can you please help me? Please help me. I'm struggling. How on earth can your state, can your MP say, oh, not my problem, uh, speak to federal. And so you go to federal and you, you say exactly the same thing. Please help me. I've been told you are the ones that can possibly help me. And they say, no, it's state's responsibility. And, and you're like, whoa, 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 hang on. What's going on here? You've become the political football, political point scoring between them. And wow, what on earth is happening? And I still can't get home. The luckiness for me was I managed to get that first London Heathrow to Darwin flight, facilitated government flight. Why me? I don't know. Definitely, look, I think the day before, I, I tried to send an email to DFAT, to Qantas, to everyone I could think of and say, please, I will do whatever it takes. Please get me home. Now, that statement can come back and haunt at the particular point that we were all at, 
you will do and say anything just to get on a flight. So if they want you to sign a piece of paper saying, you know, you give up whatever it is that you have to give up and you'll pay a fee to stay there, of course you're going to do it because basically it's coercion. So I, I, I got a, I got a phone call from Canberra at 1.30 a.m. one night in late, mid-October, saying, can you get on a flight tomorrow morning, uh, today, whatever? I was like, yes. Can you pay this much for the flight? Yes, I can. Can you go and do the PCR test in time? Yes, I can. Can you be there at the airport for 11 a.m.? Yes, I can. All of these things. Uh, are you willing to go to the facilitated quarantine site in Darwin for two weeks? Yes, I am. Can you imagine that was 1.30 in the morning? I wake up at 6 a.m. I get a friend, thankfully, to take me to Manchester. I get the PCR test. I come back. Um, I basically go, I still haven't informed my parents. I go to my parents. I say, look, I'm leaving. I'm getting on a train in an hour and I have to go. <laughs> my father's never cried before. Doesn't know how long this is going to last himself. That is terrible. I get on a train and I'm paying for these trains and PCR tests and top dollar. And I get to London and I have to stay in a hotel and I'm paying top dollar. I get myself to the airport. We are about 150 getting on a flight that can fit about 215 or six or whatever it was. I do remember being there and none of us could believe that we were actually in that queue. And we've got paperwork and we are frightened that we might get turned away. Uh, ambassador in London at the time, the Australian ambassador. I can hear someone humming behind me. We'll all be home for Christmas. I snapped at him. I said, we all won't be home for Christmas. We will not be home for Christmas. Not all of us. There are 100,000 I can think of on a Facebook site. And I wasn't the only one who went for him. And he got out of there quickly. And we got on that flight. You know, even to the point, it's like escaping from, it's like a movie. And you and you don't believe you get to Australia. And that was a 15-hour, one-way, no stops, just straight into Darwin. And then, you know, sign this, sign this, sign this, go there, get tested again, get retested. There's your accommodation. And then the two weeks. At the same time, the Australian government introduced caps on international flights, limiting the number of Australians able to return home. They also decided to shift the cost of quarantine, $3,000, to individuals. From March 2020 until July 2020, it was free. This cost was also playing on Stuart's mind. I was, um, I, again... I just went straight into my in, into my head with the finances and how much money I've got available. And with the quarantine and with the one-way flight and with the hotel and with the all of that, I think it was going to cost me around about $6,500, $7,000, one way to get from Liverpool to Melbourne eventually. I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. It's already cost me... I don't know, something like $15,000 just to live outside of Australia waiting to get back. And you, you want to charge me as well? What, what is going on? And, and of course, you're starting to see we're all, we've all got the same argument. How come is this happening? Is this normal? For the last two years, of course, we've seen there's still no firm legality around it. 
it's still constant, you know, it's it's harassment. And whereas I thought two weeks in, in Darwin, which is which was beautiful, by the way, it was the holiday that we all need. But you, you saw a lot of people in there still suffering um, emotionally. I took it as an opportunity to totally recharge, and I did. It was uh, it was alcohol free, which was great. Total detox. I just continued to detox, and I think I've had about four or five drinks in the last two years. Because I've been to war zones and I've been to things which people might not normally be exposed to. And I've got over that. I've got over those things. This one is something that happened to me. It's something that happened to about 100,000 of us or more. It's like one of those stories that it's something that's been brushed under the carpet. Emotional stress caused by my country, my, my government. Australia, I've been a citizen here for about 15 years. For me to leave and then be blocked from coming back and then charge for the privilege of coming back and then to come back. And I remember speaking to locals and saying, you know, I was stuck. I couldn't get back. And they had no idea about the 100,000 of us. And they had no idea. And they said things, soothing things like, oh, well, you know, you're back now and you can get on with it. And it's left me scarred, and I think it's useless trying to just live your life constantly blaming someone for things that happen to you. You've got to take responsibility for it. But the scar for me is that whole notion of Australian mateship and there go, that, that just does not exist. When, when it comes down to the, the arguments are things like, yeah, but you chose to go outside to go out there and earn all that money what benefit do we get from that and they don't realize that you do actually pay your taxes you pay full hilt for everything your money your savings still in your australian bank account you're still contributing to the australian economy i didn't vote for my federal leader and i would have done in a recent election I absolutely didn't vote federal or state for, for whoever was in power that wanted to get back in. Those people will never get my vote ever again. I, I kind of lodged a protest vote. And, you know, I think talking about, you know, our experiences, I think felt very personal. We were all having to cope with different circumstances on our own. And, you know, you expect your government to come to back for you as a citizen and they just literally we were sacrificial lambs they literally were happy to throw us to the wolves if it meant that the australian public generally looked like they were happy with what the government was doing because i personally think it was politically motivated it was not related to health at all uh, i also agree with you and I've got opin strong opinions about what I think about the whole debacle. But, you know, that they are irrelevant, the opinions, when they come from individuals like ourselves. As a group, they may hold more sway. For me, I go back to just how poorly the whole thing was managed. Who is accountable? And you cannot, you cannot stand up and just go, yeah, mistakes were made. Not good enough because there are hundreds of thousands of people that were affected still affected 
we are still getting these invoices every month saying, you have to pay this quarantine. It's got to the point where I think I'm financially recovered, but it's taken me 18 months. But you're not accountable for that. You, you, you can't say, I must give them money, and not, on the other hand, say, we totally messed that up. You're not getting it from me if you can't actually produce the legal or the legalities of paying for that quarantine. It's still not clear why uh, they're still invoicing us when it's it's not legal. It says it's not legal. I feel sorry for the you know the people that they get to phone us every month. You're on annoyed quarantine people duty today. In the early days when those phone calls happened to me, I was here on my property. I've got no income, no income whatsoever. They were asking me for money. I've got debts from people I've asked money for, get me through. I think I used 10,000 of my super, and still the government is asking me for this money. Why they didn't do what other governments did, uh, like India or Taiwan, any of those Asian countries. They were actually flying to other countries and repatriating. Vietnam was doing the same thing. And Vietnam, God bless them, they they don't have as much money as the Australian government or or the resources. They did it anyway. Are you challenging the fee at all? I'm not paying until it literally has, you know, the letterhead of something saying you will go to court if you don't pay this. You know, you are legally obliged to pay this. You've not paid it. Therefore, you're in trouble. It seems they can't do that. No one's ended up in court that I'm aware of. And I know that the debt collectors are probably hounding people in Western Australia, definitely. Um, But no one's been really chased up. I don't think they want people to go to court over this. After everything that has happened, Stuart has reappraised his relationship with Australia. What does citizenship mean if the government can toss it away so carelessly and without a care as to the repercussions? Yeah, I'm definitely planning a different kind of a life as a result of this. I don't feel the love is reciprocal from Australia to me, me to Australia anymore. I don't plan to finish my time in Australia. So I will take all the resources that I make and I I will... I think that's what's the the impact of this has been for me. I will leave Australia. I feel betrayed, sure. I think it's just incredulous. It's just outrageous that there was absolutely no one standing up in, in positions of power, no one standing up to say, look, we we we're we're trying to help you. Um you had a couple, I think Penny Wong was doing exceptional sort of questioning. But it, but I also think that, I don't want to be too cynical, but, you know, she was in opposition. I I, I think there, there was her, there was also another female. Katie Gallagher and also Christina Keneally. These were good advocates for us. I think so, because they were holding the committee hearings at the same time, actually questioning the public servants over the decisions that were made and how everything was being handled. And I know that Katie Gallagher, sorry, is calling for a, a royal commission into how the government handled the response. So I think that's positive. Whether it comes to fruition, I don't know. Look, look at the comedy and the chaos. We were told, I think, in one particular week, specifically by federal that 
we must mask up. We must keep doing these things to keep Australia safe. And the next day, he is in a country where you're not masked up. He's outside of a pub in England having a beer with a load of his entourage. The comedy in that is, it's unbelievable. It's, in, I'm, I'm astounded. The he that Stuart is referring to is the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison who had used a G7 meeting in the UK to explore his Cornish ancestry. I think the people who we're letting off lightly here are the media sensationalising and no one will ever hold them to account. Exactly. And that's actually one of my questions is that, you know, there was a lot in the media about, and I put in quotation marks, returning travellers. So they essentially othered us and also in the Australian public generally. And they were not kind or compassionate and there was not a lot of pushback. What were your thoughts around that? Uh, yeah, backed up by, you know, when I did get back here and I said to a 21-year-old girl here, don't you understand there's, there's still hundreds of thousands of people out there stranded? And her response was, yeah, but that's them, isn't it? That's nothing to do with me. I've got my own life to get on with. It's not her I'm picking on. It's the community that she came from. This was typical of what the media had been pushing through for, for someone as young as that to have so little compassion and empathy uh, or understanding of, you know, fellow Australians being stuck. The media caused that kind of thinking, I believe, uh, or, or contributed greatly to it. I mean, who knew that I would end up being a Pauline Hanson fan or Sky News or Spectator fan? But during that time, they seemed to be the only, I guess, media outlets that were pushing back against the dominant narrative. Completely surprised myself about where, when, oh, okay, they're actually making sense and they're, they're challenging what's being said. And I think a lot of us were surprised about, you know, we were, were cheering on for people who would normally, we would not willingly cheer on for. I think the media became a bit schizophrenic throughout that period. Um, again, politically, you know, Dan Andrews in, in Victoria was becoming classed as some sort of dictator you know, for the decisions he was doing. You know, at the same time, the media was having a go at federal level, you know, for some of these decisions based on, you know, assumptions they were making. Yeah, for, for all of us, I think we were we're all surprised. I think a girl actually said to me, someone, a friend in, in Melbourne actually said to me something like, oh, you're so right wing. And I was like, what? And I, and I remember a, a few months later saying back to her, wow, you are so right wing. Look what you just agreed with. And, and again, it was very schizophrenic. Everything happened, I think, through the whole experience. People were polarised in opinion. A response was needed. It was a poor response. It was a white elephant. Bad decision. And like I said at the beginning of this, if I'd have made the decisions in my capacity as the emergency response expert around the world in different places, I'd never get a job again. It was just very badly handled and uh, mismanaged. And economically, what a total, utter disaster. It just allowed all the conspiracy theorists to go nuts, actually. That, that will be, I think, to my dying day, I will say, those bastards should be held accountable.
The one rule for them and another for us is no more evident than with hotel quarantine invoices. Politicians rip theirs up. We are being chased by debt collectors. And and I think that highlights as well, you know, the difference between a politician, and I'm not sure whether it was Dan or the guy from WA who basically rips up these bills. Whereas how much power do we have? You know, I'm being I'm being phoned once a month by someone saying, no, you have to pay this. How much power do I have to rip that invoice up in front of them? But they're still persistently harassing. And I wonder if that persistent harassment one day will come back to haunt them. I hope so. So, so as it stands, this interview, we're having two years after, for me, two years after I eventually got back here. It's about two years to the day I finally landed back on my property. We're still talking about it. You and I and others are still in this sort of limbo of just always having that monthly email that turns up with that invoice and wondering whether it's going to escalate and why hasn't it escalated. I, I get worried more and more when I see, I think you may have posted something yesterday saying 16% of quarantine bills haven't been paid. And I immediately I jumped to the 84% that has been paid just by virtue of well, that lot paid it, so why can't you? And that's what I think the media or someone at some point will be able to say, they paid it, why can't you? You're so un-Australian. If I'd have said no to that Canberra phone call at 1.30am in the morning, or if I'd have disputed it or questioned it, I, I may have been stuck there for another several months. Two years on, the impact, I've stopped as much thinking about it. I've stopped that, you know, <laughs> those kind of Tourette's kind of arguments you have with yourself in your head. You know, I've stopped doing that. Just having this conversation again has, has just triggered when I was able to sort of reflect a little bit. Sat in Darwin at Howard Springs. I was on a row. You, you were put in rows of about 20, 30 people along like a lane. And you could sit outside on your veranda. We were segregated into like a row of single guys. And then a few lanes down from us, there was single ladies. And then there was about three or four chalets, which were just families. I do recall one old aged couple who I think they had like a Zimmer frame. They looked very feeble. Between ourselves, we asked amongst ourselves, who of us are the most vulnerable here? And apart from the old couple and maybe the families, none of us actually were the most vulnerable. We were, of course, vulnerable, but we were not the most vulnerable. I do know that the guy in the room next to me, he went in and out, in and out of Australia over the next, over the last two years. He's been out three or four times, coming back in and doing quarantine again. But he said, no, that's just the way it is. He worked overseas and that's what he was doing. There's no vulnerability there at all. But that wasn't what the government was saying for that flight that came in. We have got the most vulnerable people home. No, they did not at all. They got the most available, resource-able people who were able to drop everything and get on that flight. 
Exactly. And it was all a numbers game about ticking off people from the list. What, what I hope that comes from this is some sort of more accurate description of just exactly what it was that happened to us. You know, that doesn't actually need any opinion. It's just fact. This was terrible. Can I just close on this one thing again, relating to the fact I've seen many, many, many emergencies around the world, and I've been responsible for responding to them directly. I had to travel through about five different countries en route to getting back to Australia, including Australia. And never once in all that time was I ever stuck behind or did I ever see a funeral procession. That's what happens in a pandemic. That's what happens in an emergency. I, I never saw that once. So it's kind of left me confused as to... I would hope none of those leaders ever gets uh, put in charge of an emergency again. The Never Forget What They Did podcast tells our stories because what was done to us should never be forgotten. Music by Les FM on Pixabay. Our stories are released every week on a Sunday. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on dianelee.com.au forward slash never forget.